Chapter Twenty Seven of Fighting the Flying Circus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. Fighting the Flying Circus by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Chapter Twenty Seven, An Eventful D Day. September twenty fifth, nineteen eighteen, was my first day as captain of ninety four squadron. Early that forenoon, I started for the lines alone, flew over Verdun and Fort Douaumont, then turned east towards Etang. Almost immediately I picked up a pair of LVG two-seater machines below me. They were coming out of Germany, and were certainly bent upon an expedition over our lines. Five Fokker machines were above them, and somewhat behind, acting as protection for the photographers until the lines were reached. Climbing for the sun for all I was worth, I soon had the satisfaction of realizing that I had escaped their notice, and was now well in their rear. I shut down my motor, put down my head, and made a bee-line for the nearest Fokker. I was not observed by the enemy until it was too late for him to escape. I had him exactly in my sights when I pulled both triggers for a long burst. He made a sudden attempt to pull away, but my bullets were already ripping through his fuselage, and he must have been killed instantly. His machine fell wildly away and crashed just south of Etang. It had been my intention to zoom violently upwards and protect myself against the expected attack from the four remaining Fokkers as soon as I had finished the first man. But when I saw the effect of my attack upon the four dumbfounded Bosch, I instantly changed my tactics and plunged straight on through their formation to attack the photographing LVGs ahead. For the Heinies were so surprised by finding a spot in their midst and seeing one of their number suddenly drop that the remaining three viraged to right and left. Their one idea was to escape and save their own skins. Though they did not actually peek for home, they cleared a space large enough for me to slip through and continue my dive upon the two-seaters before they could recover their formation. The two-seaters had seen my attack and had already put down their heads to escape. I plunged along after them, getting the rear machine in my sights as I drew nearer to him. He glanced back over my shoulder showed me that the four Fokkers had not yet reformed their line, and were even now circling about, with the purpose of again solidifying their formation. I had a few seconds yet before they could begin their attack. The two LVG machines began to draw apart. Both observers in the rear seats were firing at me, although the range was still too long for accurate shooting. I dove more steeply, passed out of the gunner's view under the nearest machine, and zoomed quickly up at him from below. But the victory was not to be an easy one. The pilot suddenly kicked his tail around, giving the gunner another good aim at me. I had to postpone shooting until I had more time for my own aiming. And in the meantime, the second photographing machine had stolen up behind me, and I saw tracer bullets go whizzing and streaking past my face. I zoomed up diagonally out of range, made a renversement, and came directly back at my first target. Several times we repeated these maneuvers, the four Fokkers still wrangling among themselves about their formation, and all the time we were getting farther and farther back into Germany. I decided upon one bold attack, and if this failed I would get back to my own lines before it was too late. Watching my two adversaries closely, I suddenly found an opening between them. They were flying parallel to each other and not fifty yards apart. Dropping down in a side-slip, until I had one machine between me and the other, I straightened out smartly, leveled my spod, and began firing. The nearest Bosch passed directly through my line of fire, and just as I ceased firing I had the infinite satisfaction of seeing him gush forth flames. 
Turning over and over as he fell, the LVG started a blazing path to earth, just as the Fokker escort came tearing up to the rescue. I put on the gas and peeked for my own lines. Pleased as I was over this double header, the effect it might have upon my pilots was far more gratifying to me. Arriving at the aerodrome at 9.30, I immediately jumped into a motor car, called to Lieutenant Chambers to come with me, and we set off at once to get official confirmation for this double victory. We took the main road to Verdun, passed through the town, and gained the hills beyond the Meuse, towards Etan. Taking the road up to Fort de Tavans, we passed over that bloody battlefield of 1916, where so many thousand German troops fell before French fire, in the memorable Battle for Verdun. At the very crest of the hill we were halted by a French poilu, who told us the rest of the road was in full view of the Germans, and that we must go no farther. We asked him as to whether he had seen my combat overhead this morning. He replied in the affirmative, and added that the officers in the adjacent fort, too, had witnessed the whole fight through their field glasses. We thanked him, and leaving our car under his care, took our way on foot to the fort. Two or three hundred yards of shell-holes sprinkled the ground between us and the fort. We made our way through them, gained admittance to the interior of the fort, and in our best pigeon French, stated our errand to Monsieur le Commandant. He immediately wrote out full particulars of the combat I had had with the LVG, signed it, and congratulated me upon my victory with a warm shake of the hand. Having no further business at this place, we made our adieus and hastened back to our car. Plunging through the shallowest shell-holes, we had traversed about half the distance to our car, which stood boldly out on top of the road, when a shrill whining noise made us pause and listen. The next instant a heavy explosion announced that a shell had landed about fifty yards short of us. Simultaneously with a shower of gravel and dirt which headed our way, we dropped unceremoniously on our faces in the bottom of the deepest shell-hole in our vicinity. The Huns had spotted our car and were actually trying to get its range. Two or three times we crawled out of our hole, only to duck back at the signal of the next coming shell. After six or eight shots, the Bosch gunners evidently considered their target too small, for they ceased firing long enough for us to make a bolt across the intervening holes and throw ourselves into the waiting automobile. I most fervently wished that I had turned the car around before leaving it, and I shall never forget the frightful length of time it took me to get our car backed around and headed in the right direction. We lost no time in getting down that hill. Next day was to be an important one for us and for the whole American army. Officially, it was designated as D-Day, and the zero hour, by the same code, was set for four o'clock in the morning. At that moment, the artillery barrage would begin, and forty thousand doughboys, who were posted along the front-line trenches from the Meuse to the Argonne Forest, would go over the top. It was the 26th day of September, 1918. Precisely at four o'clock, I was awakened by my orderly, who informed me that the weather was good. Hastily getting out of doors, I looked over the dark sky, wondering as I did so how many of our boys it would claim before this day's work was done, for we had an important part to play in this day's operations. Headquarters had sent us orders to attack all the enemy observation balloons along that entire front this morning, and to continue the attacks until the infantry operations were completed. Accordingly, every fighting squadron had been assigned certain of these balloons for attack, and it was our duty to see that they were destroyed. The safety of thousands of our attacking soldiers depended upon our success in eliminating these all-watching eyes of the enemy. Incidentally, 
It was the first balloon strafing party that 94 Squadron had been given since I had been made its leader, and I desired to make a good showing on this first expedition. Just here it may be well to point out the difficulties of balloon strafing, which makes this undertaking so unattractive to the new pilot. German Archie is terrifying at first acquaintance. Pilots affect a scorn for it, and indeed at high altitudes the probabilities of a hit are small. But when attacking a balloon which hangs only 1,500 feet above the guns, and this altitude is, of course, known precisely to the anti-aircraft gunner, Archie becomes far more dangerous. So when a pilot begins his first balloon attacking expeditions, he knows that he runs a gauntlet of fire that may be very deadly. His natural impulse is to make a nervous plunge into the zone of danger, fire his bullets, and get away. Few victories are won with this method of attack. The experienced balloon strafers, particularly such daring airmen as Coolidge and Luke, do not consider the risks or terrors about them. They proceed in the attack as calmly as though they were sailing through a stormless sky. Regardless of flaming missiles from the ground, they pass through the defensive barrage of fire, and often return again and again to attack the target, until it finally bursts into flames from their incendiary bullets. The office charts inform me that the day would break this morning at six o'clock. Consequently, we must be ready to leave the ground in our machines at 5.20, permitting us thirty minutes in which to reach our objectives, and ten minutes in which to locate our individual balloons, for it is essential to strike at these well-defended targets just at the edge of dawn. Then the balloons are just starting aloft, and our attacking airplanes are but scantily visible from below. Moreover, enemy airplanes are not apt to be about so early in the morning, unless the enemy has some inkling of what is going on. I routed out five of my best pilots, Lieutenants Cook, Chambers, Taylor, Coolidge, and Palmer, and as we gathered together for an early breakfast, we went over again all the details of our prearranged plans. We had two balloons assigned to our squadron, and three of us were delegated to each balloon. Both lay along the Meuse, between Brabant and Don. Every one of us had noted down the exact location of his target on the evening before. It would be difficult, perhaps, to find them before daylight if they were still in their nests, but we were to hang about in the vicinity until we did find them, if it took all day. With every man fully posted on his course and objective, we put on our coats and walked over to the hangars. I was the last to leave the field, getting off the ground at exactly 5.20. It was still dark, and we had to have the searchlights turned onto the field for a moment to see the ground while we took off. As soon as we lifted into the darkness, the lights were extinguished and then I saw the most marvelous sight that my eyes have ever seen. A terrific barrage of artillery fire was going on ahead of me. Through the darkness the whole western horizon was illumined with one mass of sudden flashes. The big guns were belching out their shells with such rapidity that there appeared to be millions of them shooting at the same time. Looking back I saw the same scene in my rear. From Lunéville on the east to Rance on the west there was not one spot of darkness along the whole front. The French were attacking along both our flanks at the same time with us, in order to help demoralize the weakening Bosch. The picture made me think of a gigantic switchboard, which emitted thousands of electric flashes as invisible hands manipulated the plugs. So fascinated did I become over this extraordinary fireworks display, that I was startled upon peering over the side of my machine to discover the city of Verdun below my aeroplane's wings. Fastening my course above the dim outline of the Meuse River, I followed its windings downstream, occasionally cutting across little peninsulas which I recognized along the way. 
Every inch of this route was as familiar to me as was the path around the corner of my old home. I knew exactly the point in the Meuse Valley where I would leave the river and turn left to strike the spot where my balloons lay last night. I did not know what course the other pilots had taken. Perhaps they had already— Just as these thoughts were going through my mind, I saw directly ahead of me the long, snaky flashes of enemy tracer bullets from the ground, piercing the sky. There was the location of my balloon— and either Cook or Chambers was already attacking it. The enemy had discovered them, and were putting up the usual hail of flaming projectiles around the balloon site. But even as the flaming bullets continued streaming upwards, I saw a gigantic flame burst out in their midst. One of the boys had destroyed his gas bag. Even before the glare of the first had died, I saw our second enemy balloon go up in flames. My pilots had succeeded beyond my fondest expectations— Undoubtedly, the enemy would soon be swinging new balloons up in their places, but we must wait a while for that. I resolved to divert my course and fly further to the north, where I knew of the nest of another German observation balloon near Damviers. Dawn was just breaking as I headed more to the east and tried to pick out the location of Damviers. I was piercing the gloom with my eyes when again, straight in front of my revolving propeller, I saw another gush of flame which announced the doom of another enemy balloon the very one I had determined to attack. While I was still jubilating over the extraordinary good luck that had attended us in this morning's expedition, I glanced off to my right, and was almost startled out of my senses, to discover that a German Fokker was flying alongside me not a hundred yards away. Not expecting any of the enemy airplanes to be abroad at this early hour, I was naturally upset for the moment. The next instant I saw that he had headed for me, and was coming straight at my machine." We both began firing at the same time. It was still so dark that our four streams of flaming bullets cut brilliant lines of fire through the air. For a moment it looked as though our two machines were tied together with four ropes of fire. All my ammunition was of the incendiary variety for use against gas bags. The Hun's ammunition was part tracer, part incendiary, and part regular chunks of lead. As we drew nearer and nearer, I began to wonder whether this was to be a collision— or whether he would get out of my way. He settled the question by tipping down his head to dive under me. I instantly made a renversement, which put me close behind him and in a most favorable position for careful aim. Training my sights into the corner of his fuselage, I pulled both triggers. With one long burst, the fight was over. The Fokker fell over onto one wing and dropped aimlessly to earth. It was too dark to see the crash, and moreover, I had all thoughts of my victory dissipated by a sudden ugly jerk to my motor, which immediately developed into a violent vibration. As I turned back towards Verdun, which was the nearest point to our lines, I had recurring visions of crashing down into Germany to find myself a prisoner. This would be a nice ending to our glorious balloon expedition. Throttling down to reduce the pounding, I was able just to maintain headway. If my motor failed completely, I was most certainly doomed— for I was less than a thousand feet above ground, and could glide but a few hundred yards without power. Providence was again with me, for I cleared the lines and made our Verdun aerodrome where one flight of the 27th squadron was housed. I landed without damage, and hastily climbed out of my machine to investigate the cause of my trouble. Imagine my surprise when I discovered that one blade of my propeller had been shot in two by my late adversary. He had evidently put several holes through it when he made his head-on attack and, utterly unconscious of the damage I had received, I had reversed my direction and shot him down before the weakened blade gave way. The heavy jolting of my engine was now clear to me. 
Only half of the propeller caught the air. Lieutenant Jerry Vasconcells of Denver, Colorado, was in charge of the Verdun field, on which I had landed. He soon came out and joined me as I was staring at my broken propeller, and then I learned that he had just landed himself from a balloon expedition. A few questions followed, and then we shook hands spontaneously. He had shot down the Damvier balloon himself, the same one for which I had been headed, and as he was returning he had seen me shoot down my Fokker. This was extremely lucky for both of us, for we were able each to verify the other's victory for him, although of course corroboration from ground witnesses was necessary to make these victories official. His mechanics placed a new propeller on my spod, and none the worse for its recent rough usage, the little bus took me rapidly home. I landed at 8.30 on my own field, and there I heard the great news. Our group had that morning shot down ten German balloons. My victory over the Fokker made it eleven victories to be credited us for this hour's work and we had not lost a single pilot. As the jubilant and famished pilots crowded into the mess hall, one could not hear a word through all the excited chatter. Each one had some strange and fearful adventure to relate about his morning's experiences, but the tale which aroused howls of laughter was the droll story told by Lieutenant White of the 147th Squadron. White had searched long and earnestly for the balloon that he desired to attack. He thought himself hopelessly lost in the darkness, when, off to one side, he distinguished the dark outline of what he thought was his balloon. Immediately redressing his machine, he tipped downwards, and began plugging furious streams of flaming bullets into his target. He made a miscalculation in his distance, and before he could swerve away from the dark mass ahead of him, his machine had plunged straight through it. And then he discovered that he had been peeking upon a round puff of black smoke that had just been made by German Archie. End of chapter Recording by Brett Downey